Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up at your door in as little as two days. Then, when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out for more new-to-you styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours and spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothing for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off of their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. recall, I've spent my last few episodes talking about the missing women and unsolved deaths from the Yakima Reservation in Washington. My plan for today's episode, covering the confirmed murders from Yakima, took a turn when I realized there are not only far too many cases for one episode, but the cases fall into categories of solved and unsolved. So for this episode, I will be covering some of the unsolved murders of the Yakima Nation. In future episodes, I will share the solved murders and the remaining cases that are far too robust and require their own episode. Eventually, I will get through the tragically long list of cases from Yakima. As with those previous episodes, I've been focusing on the Yakima Reservation. I owe a lot of the credit regarding the coverage of these cases to Tammy Ayer at the Yakima Herald Republic. Some of the cases today have a lot of information, others only have a name and some basic info. As always, it's about getting this information shared so that hopefully one person who knows that one crucial piece of information will send in a tip and answer some of these long, unanswered questions. On June 24, 2022, first responders arrived at an unusual scene. A car had been left near a Wapato tire shop on Donald Road. It was around 12.30 p.m. In the back seat of the car was 38-year-old Anna Mae coming out. Upon first glance, it was hard to tell what was going on. 
Anna was clearly in distress and was not responsive, but did not have any visible injuries. However, there was blood in the car. Anna was removed from the vehicle and CPR was started but had no success. She was pronounced dead and her cause of death was listed as homicidal violence. Wapato initially had the case, but because of Anna's citizenship of the Yakima Nation, the case was turned over to the FBI. I could not find anything regarding an update surrounding her autopsy, but I will let you know if I do. If you have any information about Anna Mae Cumminout's violent murder in June of 2022, please submit that information to tips.fbi.gov. Tiana Lee Raincloud was only 20 years old when she was shot on March 30th, 2021. Things hadn't been going great for the young lady as she was out on bail, stemming from charges regarding residential burglary, possession of a stolen motor vehicle, violating a no-contact order, and second-degree theft. I only bring that up as it appears this incident may have been some sort of shootout or related to some sort of drug activity, and her death could have stemmed from those charges slash activities. That's not a statement from police, just my opinion based on what I've read. On that night, Tiana was at a house in the 3100 block of South Wapato Road, four miles west of Topanish, 2.5 miles south of Wapato itself. When the police arrived, they found several people who had been injured by gunfire. Because the shooting was on reservation land and Tiana was a citizen of Yakima, the FBI is handling her case. So if you have a tip regarding the shooting death of Tiana Lee Raincloud on March 20th, 2021, you can leave a tip at tips.fbi.gov. Friday, April 5th, 2019. 41-year-old Angela Marie Heath was crossing the intersection of U.S. 97 and South Wapato Road. It was around midnight. It was dark. The driver of what is believed to have been a full-sized GMC Sierra truck or a Yukon did not see her or was too incapacitated to do so, and they struck Angela. Angela succumbed to her massive head and chest injuries. The driver never stopped. The GMC Sierra or Yukon's color is unknown, but it should have damage on the front passenger side. The large vehicle was believed to have been traveling northbound on State Route 91 and continued in that direction after striking her. Officials ask anyone with information about this case to contact the Washington State Patrol at 509-249-6700. Mini Rainbow Andy's case isn't so much unsolved as it is still open. In September 2017, 31-year-old Christopher Levon Lagme was indicted for the murder of Minnie. She died from blunt force trauma to her chest and head on July 9, 2017. It was around 4 a.m. at 70 Egan Road in Wapato when she was attacked. She was taken to the hospital, but there was nothing that could be done to save her. The Yakima police and the FBI became involved in Minnie's case and, based on unknown evidence, were able to find and arrest a suspect, Christopher Lagme. Though he was indicted by a grand jury, he has never gone to trial for the murder. There was a trial set to start on January 22, 2019, but before it could, the state made a request for the judge to drop the indictment. Thankfully, they did so without prejudice, so double jeopardy does not apply, and they can charge Christopher in the future if they find the evidence they need to feel comfortable enough to actually take him to trial. 
Unlike most cases, we can ask for tips not only regarding Minnie, the victim, but also Christopher, the possible perpetrator. Maybe you've heard something or seen behaviors that point to information or evidence that would help the state move forward if Christopher is the responsible party. Minnie was a beloved auntie, a fisherwoman. She adored powwows and Hawaii's beaches. If you have any information about Minnie's murder, you are asked to submit a tip to tips.fbi.gov. Naoma Alexander George was born on March 28, 1980, and laid to rest on October 18, 2013. The 33-year-old left behind eight children when she was found in a Wapato alley three days prior. Naoma had been beaten to death in the early morning hours of October 15. Naoma had been raised in the Washat religion at the Topanish Longhouse. Activities in her culture came easy, and she was known for her beadwork, root digging, and berry picking skills. If you have any information about her brutal murder in Wapato on October 15th, you can send it to tips.fbi.gov. Inside a home that was part of the Apos Gaudi housing project of Yakima is where 44-year-old Barbara Celestine's body was found on September 5th, 2005. Her cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. That's as much information as there is about this case. If you have any other tips or information, you can submit them at tips.fbi.gov. Donnie Sampson went missing on October 30th, 1994. He was the patriarch of his family and a religious leader who served on the Yakima Tribal Council's Code of Ethics Committee for eight years. In that position, he was actively investigating at least one tribal police officer and a couple of committee members. According to Donnie's son, Bruce, it was early on a Sunday morning when his father received a call to meet someone in the mountains. Other reports say that Donnie left to go elk hunting 45 miles west of White Swan, an area that he was very familiar with. Something happened during that mountain meeting, and the 71-year-old never returned home. Eventually, his pickup was located on a dirt road on Mount Adams, Inside the truck, police found some of Donnie's clothes, his lunch, three rifles, and medication. A fourth gun was missing that should have been in the truck. And I do want to note that reports vary, with one of them saying that one of the three guns that had been found in the truck may have been a stranger's weapon that had been left on the passenger's seat. Learning of Donnie's disappearance, searchers scoured the area but found nothing. The police told the family that he had simply become lost in the forest— something they never bought. Their father spent way too much time in that area, and he knew it too well to have ever gotten lost. Donnie's location and the answers as to what happened to him remain a mystery. In 1994, another one of Donnie's children alluded to the Ethics Committee investigation being the real cause of his disappearance. One of his daughters implied that there had been some shady dealings going on within the committee. Eventually, Donnie was declared dead, but he is still listed on the missing persons list. I bring Donnie up because not only is his case unsolved, but so is his daughter's from two years prior. Sherry D. Sampson Elwell was 30 years old in 1992. She and her cooking were loved additions to the Wapato community. She made her family laugh and was known for her happy-go-lucky demeanor. Her brother's favorite memory was when Sherry made a blanket for their father and the very stoic man told her that he loved her, something he did not say often. In early December 1992, Sherry was living with a roommate in Wapato. 
When the roommate realized she hadn't seen Sherry in about a week, she was concerned and called Sherry's mother, who knew right away that something was wrong, so she called the police. On December 30th, hunters northwest of White Swan, on a notably remote area of the Yakima Reservation, discovered Sherry's body. The 30-year-old had been sexually mutilated and strangled. As of the interview he gave in 2021, Bruce Sampson is getting older, and he is scared of being one of those people who has to die without knowing what happened to his father and his sister. The FBI and Department of Justice will not confirm or deny if they have an open case for Sherry's murder, but the family believes that there is one. It also seems like it's active since the police department ignored the NBC reporter's request for case documents. What Bruce does know is that someone somewhere knows something. He and his family know firsthand how careful you have to be when attempting to call someone out, like with their father's case. He was investigating an officer, so it's not like they can just come out and make accusations. But not knowing about either case has left Bruce feeling hopeless, depressed, and desperate. He just wants that one person with that one tip to come forward so he doesn't have to pray every day for answers about his little sister and father. If you know anything about either Donnie or Sherry D. Sampson Elwell's cases, you're asked to leave a tip at tips.fbi.gov. A headline on page two of The Columbian from February 15, 1993, read, Reservation Murders Stump FBI. Below that, Single Killer Unlikely in String of Unsolved Yakima Indian Killings Agency Reports, Some close to the investigations in question said the FBI wasn't stumped, they just weren't doing their job. One man, Melford Hall, actually retired from the Bureau of Indian Affairs because he was so frustrated over mishandled investigations. Johnny Wyman, brother to Joanne Betty Wyman John, had been dealing with tribal investigators after his sister was killed. Joanne Wyman John was 44 years old on August 1, 1988. That night, she played pool with her brother Johnny at the Brownstown Tavern. After leaving the bar, she was never seen again. For three years, her family and 11 children were desperate for her to come home alive. Then, on February 2, 1991, three years later, her body, well, technically her skull and some bone fragments, were recovered near Mill Creek, just south of White Swan. She was ID'd via dental records. Her exact cause of death could not be determined via autopsy because of the decomposition, but her death was listed as being caused by homicidal violence. In 1993, when Johnny was interviewed for the newspaper expressing his frustration toward the FBI, he also shared a sentiment that rings true today, saying, quote, The authorities seem to take the attitude that it's just a bunch of drunken Indian women. It's just another slap in the face. I can't code it for anybody. She was my sister, and she meant something to me. Again, tips can be submitted to tips.fbi.gov. On January 27, 1986, Rosalia Lou Tooley married Richard Alex Sohappy. This marriage, taking place just a month before her 30th birthday, was Rosalia's second. It's unknown what took place in that marriage or in her life over the next three years, but they would be her last. Rosalia was last seen alive on New Year's Eve 1988. Her partially undressed body would be found three months later on March 13, 1989. She was in a ravine remotely located on the south slope of the Antonym Ridge, north of Brownstown. 
This was another case where the dental records confirmed her identity. An autopsy showed Rosalia had been strangled before being disposed of in the ravine. If you know anything about the strangulation death of 31-year-old Rosalia Lou Tuli So Happy on or around New Year's Eve 1989, please contact the Yakima County Sheriff's Office at 509-574-2500. On February 16, 1988, a person was riding their horse on a dirt road next to the Yakima River and close to the Parker Dam when they saw something strange. Hopping off, they approached the debris and quickly realized that it was clothing and a skeleton. The discovery was called in. At the time, investigators did what they could to identify the body, but had no luck. The skull was eventually sent to Central Washington University's anthropology department, where they used facial reconstruction to build a face in hopes it would help with identification. Hey, one of my old professors is working there. Oh, how neat. And that is her department. (gasps) Maybe she probably knows this case then. I bet you she does. That'd be well. We should see if she wants to chat about that. I've actually talked to her about possibly collaborating because yeah. she has a podcast she started over COVID. <gasps> oh, cool! With another anthropology professor, so it could be a cool oh, that'd be a great crossover, and you could really scratch that itch. Mm-hmm. Oh, that'd be fun. A face was created, as was a possible profile. This was a female between thirty to thirty-nine years old. She was small, only about five feet tall. This woman had been the victim of homicidal violence somewhere between four to ten months before having been found. She had black hair and weighed between 100 and 120 pounds. There were no obvious signs of trauma on the skeleton. It was also known that she had been wearing a long-sleeved blouse, lavender pants, and brown bowling shoes. The skeleton was intact except for a few bones missing from the right hand and her hyoid bone. Now, Emily, I'd like your thoughts on this because just from armchair perspective, hearing that someone has been out in the elements between four to ten months to the point that they're a skeleton, but there's only a couple of bones missing from a hand and just that one from her throat. That's interesting. Right? So your first inclination when someone is left out in the wilderness is there's going to be animal activity. And usually that's going to be limbs being pulled away. Right. The gut being eaten. Yeah. Like as they're decomposing, the parts are being taken away to be consumed. Not to say that might not be the case. And maybe small scavengers took smaller bones, but that is odd. Isn't that strange? It's very strange. And then it made me think since they couldn't tell what the cause of death was, could she have been strangled and it broke the hyoid. Yes. And, and maybe, then maybe it was really small and fell away and or was taken. Or, you know, possibly, I don't know how likely this is, broken, swallowed in your body. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, I, I just, I knew that that would, you would feel the same way. It's odd. Cause it's I, like, well, if you're getting part of the finger, why wouldn't it be the whole hand or the entire arm? enough, that professor I mentioned who uh, is at that university... Mm-hmm. Her Ph.D. dissertation was a, was basically taking pigs and putting them in the wilderness and all sorts of on the ground, hanging from a tree and watching how scavengers. Oh, so kind of like body. body farm, but specifically yeah. for so, scavengers. Exactly. OK. Yeah. Very much like that. She was in Alberta, Canada. though. OK. So these were dead pigs, right? Dead. Pi- well, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Yes, and I, I tried for you my paused for a second. Well, my senior project, <laughs> my my friend Shane and I tried to get a pig to kind of replicate what she did for our uh, uh-huh. paper we were doing, and we couldn't get him because in Oregon it's very you can't just buy a dead pig. I don't know if you know that or not. 
<laughs> uh, tell me about it. We, tra- we even asked, her, like, can we get a, just a head? They're like, nope. You have to, like, buy a live pig when we're like, not doing that. So we ended up using steaks. <laughs> I was going to say, just go to White's Meats, the butcher down the street, and they have every part. But it's interesting just because in all the scenarios of how scavengers get to that body, I, I don't think that scenario would ever pop up. Yeah, doesn't so that sound strange? It'd be very interesting to talk to her about You this. should, because this is this case is at that school, connected to that school. So I just found that to be very odd. And I felt like the hyoid kind of... It at least had me thinking more strangulation. Oh, yeah. No injuries. They break when. Yeah. You have no injuries on the body or on the remains, you know, on the skeleton. There's no knife marks or anything like that. And so to have that one piece that is so commonly broken in that kind of situation, that was the only thing I could think of. Thank you for your input. Always. Always willing to put my two cents. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Just kidding. Leads were followed. The image of the clay face built upon the skull was shared with the public. A homicide case was opened, but the woman has still not been identified. And although she was discovered in the Yakima area, experts felt that, yes, she was native, but she was not part of the Yakima tribe. That information, along with the fact that there were active serial rapists and killers in the area at the time, not limited to the Green River Killer, continued to add to the difficulty in identifying the woman. Back in 2018, in a Yakima Herald Republic article, Detective Sergeant Gerald Towell of the Sheriff's Office did state that the case does have DNA via hair and fingernails, and they could be tested. I'm not sure if any of them have actually been through the system yet, but if the hair is testable, that could either give a name to the victim or the killer, and either would be a really great start. As for Parker Doe's remains, she was buried, without her skull, in the West Hills Memorial Park back in 1989. On October 14, 2021, she was exhumed and her remains were sent to be processed for DNA. As other remains were found, like Daisy May Heath and Kaner Louise John Lee Wallahy, who I've mentioned in other cases, the list is being narrowed down as to who Parker Doe could have been. A digital photo of how she might look will be up on our blog. Hopefully, we'll get answers from the new testing soon, and the family that has been silently missing their loved one for so long can know what happened to her. I did reach out to the county coroner to see if there was any information available since the exhumation and the testing. They responded very quickly, letting me know that they are still awaiting those results. I'm sure once they get them, there will be some press releases, and we'll be able to get that info out. If you happen to know anything about the Parker Doe found in Parker, near the Parker Dam, you are asked to contact the Yakima County Coroner's Office at 509-574-1610. Janice Marie Wilson was 20 years old in August of 1987. On August 5th, Janice had attended a party in Granger, a small town in the Yakima Valley. When she left the party, she attempted to hitchhike to Sunnyside, Washington, which is less than 10 miles east. On August 8th, the son of an orchard owner was working on the land when he saw a body and called police. Investigators arrived. They started processing the scene but did not know whose body they were dealing with. It was clearly a young woman but her head had been beaten so severely they did not learn it was Janice Wilson until her dental records were confirmed. Evidence such as scattered clothing and other materials were taken from the scene where her body had been and saved for possible future testing. It wouldn't be until 2008, 21 years after her murder, that technology would catch up with their needs. 
Those items were sent to a Texas-based lab, and with the use of grant money, they were processed. Janice's case was about the 1,000th in line, so there was an excruciating wait. But it was worth it. The lab provided the Washington State Lab with some DNA information. Washington ran it through their system, and thanks to the process of taking DNA from felons in Oregon, a match was found. So in early 2009, when the now 41-year-old Samuel Posota went to meet with his probation officer in Hermiston, Oregon, he was arrested for the murder of Janice Wilson. Samuel Posota was a surprising match to the DNA. He had never come up during the initial investigation. In the years since high school, when the murder occurred, he had grown quite the rap sheet, mostly related to robberies, drugs, and probation violations. It was surprising to Janice's adoptive parents to hear it was Sam. They hadn't remembered him from when they had worked at the local schools or when Janice attended high school with him. But here he was, being accused of brutally murdering their daughter. It was just as surprising a name was ever even found. When a cold case goes on for 20 years, it's hard to not give up hope of getting answers. At the time, newspapers predicted that the charges Samuel would face would probably be aggravated first-degree murder and rape. Now that someone had been arrested, everyone who cared for Janice waited for those charges and a trial and hopefully a conviction. They would never get it. In late 2011, for reasons I cannot find, Samuel Posota was acquitted. That seems shocking to me since DNA was involved, and since I can't find records or even a newspaper that mentions it, I can only kind of make some guesses. Maybe this guy was able to prove that he had been in some sort of consensual relationship with her. Possibly. You know, so if there was skin under the nails or his hair on her, or he had proven a mistake either in the lab or during some part of the evidence gathering. I, I don't know. So I'm just kind of confused. And this whole thing set off a little bit of a something stinks yeah. nerve tingle of, wait, how do you get the DNA of the guy? He's not even on the radar. So it's not like, oh, yeah, we can finagle it to pin this guy. He came out of the blue. My only guess is that maybe there was a huge mistake that was made by the state and it was so bad that they let a possible killer walk away. So technically, Janice's case is unsolved. Another reason it would be nice to have the information behind the acquittal, if it was shown that Sam had nothing to do with it and there was a valid reason for his DNA to be connected, then we know that there's still a killer on the loose and we need to keep our story out there. If there was a mistake made by the police or the prosecution or the testing facility that maybe forced the jury to acquit, it remains pretty clear that Samuel was the responsible party. I will continue to dig and look through records, and if I find anything, we'll include it in an update episode. Babette Crystal Green was 26 years old in October of 1986 when she was last seen alive. The following summer, skeletal remains were found outside Wapato, just off North Track Road. Sadly, it would take until February 1989, a year and a half later, for her remains to be identified via dental records. The autopsy results are unknown, but her death was listed as being caused by homicidal violence. There is no other information available regarding the young member of the Warm Springs Tribe of Oregon. There isn't even a listed agency. So if you do know anything about 26-year-old Babette Crystal Green, whose remains were found in Wapato in 1987, please contact the Topanish Police Department at 509-836-6229. Just like with Babette's case, there is shockingly limited information for Clydell Alice Sampson's death. 
On December 28, 1986, 25-year-old Clydell's remains were discovered by hunters. This was two years after she had last been seen alive. Though she had decomposed to the skeletal level, the medical examiner was able to determine her cause of death was a shotgun blast to the head. And that's it. Clydell Sampson was from Klickitat and had last been seen in 1984. If you have any information, please visit tips.fbi.gov. The story of Mavis Josephine McKay is one of many in a web of family tragedy. Her family is even connected to my episode The Massacre about missionaries Marcus and Narcissia Whitman who converted indigenous people in the Pendleton area. When they refused to leave when asked, they were killed. Mavis's grandmother, Awawanita, was one of their converts. You can learn more about that case by searching YouTube or our Patreon where you can listen to old episodes for free. Mavis, along with her seven siblings, grew up on the Umatilla Reservation, where they took part in their culture and even spoke the Umatillian language. When she was 16 years old, Mavis was relocated 200 miles east to Gresham, the city we border, which also borders the east side of Portland. She was sent to the Louise Home Hospital, which is now home to an Albertina Kerr facility, if you're familiar with them. But back in the 40s, it was a home for unwed mothers, most of which were white. It's unknown how long Mavis was there or for what reason. Mavis did give birth to her daughter Mildred in 1953, but it doesn't seem that she went to that facility for 13 years, especially if it was for being pregnant. When Mildred was just four years old, she and her teen brother, along with the new baby, lost their mother. On August 13, 1957, an employee of a cemetery west of Topanish was riding in the back of a pickup to get to work. As the truck drove over a bridge that crosses a canal known as Lateral 4, he spotted the nude body of 32-year-old Mavis floating face down in the irrigation canal. That canal is less than a mile from Legends Casino and is next to the Elmwood Cemetery, which is where that man worked. Mavis and the kids had been in Topanish to visit family. An autopsy revealed several discoveries that led experts and family members to believe Mavis had been murdered. She did not have water in her lungs, so she didn't drown, and she was dead before going into the water. Her legs and back were covered with random bruises and abrasions. She had a severe bruise on the top of her head. Her cause of death was due to a broken neck about four hours before being discovered. Her clothing was never found. Mildred grew up asking for and expecting answers. Her family, though, they did not want to talk about it, and even when she was an adult, no investigators spoke with her. She would go on to have five children of her own, one of which, a daughter, she named after her mother. Mavis Mayan Kirk was 31 when she attended a work holiday party on December 16, 2009. The party was taking place on the Warm Springs Reservation. It seems that perhaps as she left the party, her boyfriend, who was behind the wheel of a vehicle, not sure if it was his or hers, accidentally struck her. She did not survive, and the family was devastated. Now Mildred had lost her mother and a daughter, both named Mavis, and Mavis left behind two children of her own. At first, the family had assumed there was no foul play. I would imagine a holiday party would have maybe included a couple of drinks, or perhaps it was so dark that the boyfriend just didn't see her. Plenty of ways to have an accident like that. But then the autopsy results came in. They showed that Mavis had been struck not once, but twice. As in the boyfriend struck and ran over her, backed up, and did it again. Later, the family learned that the boyfriend had pleaded the fifth when being interviewed. 
With that information, they felt Mavis had been a victim of a homicide. As the family anxiously awaited to hear the boyfriend was going to be charged, they received news from the U.S. Attorney General's office. They would not be pressing charges, and in fact, the case was going to be dropped entirely. In the 15 years since her death, there appears to be no active case surrounding Mavis's death, again caused by being run over twice by her boyfriend. And those two are just the bookend tragedies. On August 30th, 1997, Lisa Pearl Bersenio, a niece, I believe, of Mildred, so possibly Mavis's grandchild, was last seen. Lisa's sister eventually reported her missing. She had last been seen getting into the white 1983 BMW her boyfriend was driving. The car was later found, but Lisa has not been seen or heard from since. Lisa is a member of the Confederated Tribes of the Warm Springs Reservation. At the time of her disappearance, 27 years ago, she was between 5 foot and 5 foot 4, and her weight was listed as being around 110, all the way up to 200 pounds. So, obviously, the weight is not known. She has black hair and brown eyes. She was last seen wearing blue flowered pants with a cream-colored blouse. Today, she would be 55 years old. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Lisa Pearl Brasinio, please contact the Portland Police Bureau by calling 503-823-0446, or you can email missing at portlandoregon.gov. As for Mavis, the grandmother, her death was officially listed as a homicide, though it wasn't at first considered one. The coroner implied Mavis could have broken her neck by diving into the shallow canal. There was evidence, though, that eventually convinced officials otherwise and added to the theory of murder. One point was that the canal only held some water during some parts of the year. It's a small canal that doesn't go very deep and has dirt banks instead of cement on the sides. All of that is to say that if she had ended up in there while alive, she could have climbed out. The FBI became involved and started their investigation. Some men were questioned, but nothing came of it. And now, 66 years after Mavis's body was pulled from the water, it seems impossible that Mildred or any other family members will get the answers they are so desperate for. If you do happen to know anything about Mavis Josephine McKay's death in Topanish in August 1957, you can report your tip at tips.fbi.gov. You may remember my episode Fallen Leaves from 2020, where I spoke with advocate Anitra Freeman about her group that celebrates the lives of those who are so often forgotten, houseless community members who pass away. If you don't live in the Seattle area, you can see the leaves and read the stories of the people behind them at homelessremembrance.org. If you are in the Seattle area, you can find the golden leaves with names and dates throughout the city. And at the Seattle Justice Center, you'll find one that reads Sandra Lee Smithcon, 1958-2003. Sandra's leaf was placed in that location not as a statement, but because it was where she had been shot in 2003. Born in Topanish, Washington in 1958, Sandra was one of 12 children. After graduating East Valley High in Moxie, 20 miles north of Topanish, she went on to have a career working with patients in a local elderly care facility, she loved helping those who needed it. Having a son, George Daniel Lee Jr., with George Sr., after meeting him in a pool hall where she was a bit of a shark, and two daughters, Lita Ganey and Priscilla Jacobs, Sandra's life was shaken when she went to court, for reasons not published, and ended up losing custody of her children. The father or fathers aren't mentioned, just that she wasn't in any kind of relationship at the time. 
The court's decision and her loss led to a dark path of self-medicating and partying. Before the children were removed from Sandra, she had placed a focus on engaging them in their native heritage. She taught them how to dance, dress, fish, hunt, survive. As her children grew, Sandra still stayed in touch, at least with her son George. The last conversation he had with his mother was when he was in high school and he had made the decision to join the Air Force. Outside of that conversation, what he knew of his mother came via his sisters. Eventually, Seattle became Sandra's home away from home. On the plus side, the larger city offered more job opportunities. On the downside, the city offered easy access to drugs and alcohol that Sandra was using to cope. At some point, her addiction led to her living on the streets. Although her mother Elaine would later tell the Seattle PI that Sandra always had a home with her in Wapato. In June 2003, Sandra did go visit family in the eastern part of the state. She took part in the family's powwow before leaving to go back to Seattle. As usual, her big family overshadowed her petite frame. No matter how dark or heavy things got for her, there was one constant noticed by those who cared about her, her never-fading, big, bright smile. At that time, Sandra was 45 years old and living under the Yesler Way overpass in Seattle. On the night of July 12, 2003, Sandra was on 4th Avenue, the street under Yesler, with an unknown man. It's believed that someone was setting off fireworks in that area. It's unknown what the motivation was behind the fireworks. It's also unclear exactly what took place next, but apparently someone was made very upset by said fireworks and while standing on the overpass, pulled out a gun and just started firing down to the street below. Both Sandra and her male companion were asleep at the time and both were struck by gunfire. The man was shot in the leg and taken to the hospital, from which he was soon released. Sandra was not so lucky as she had been struck in the abdomen. She was also taken to the hospital, but did not survive. The only description of the presumed shooter is male, dark-complexioned, in his 20s or 30s, so now 40s or 50s. That isn't the only story, though. George said he spoke with a friend after his mother's murder, a friend who claimed his father worked as a police chief. When they looked into it, they reported Sandra's death may have actually been a hit. It was claimed that Sandra may have owed someone $300 and that a white woman hired a man to kill her. That second idea seems a little fishy. Why would someone be up on an overpass at night to take someone out? It seems like it would be really difficult to assure that you got the right person or completed the job. It also seems like a really good way to be seen by other people and or to get caught. So maybe there was money problems in there, but I find that a little unreasonable. It sounds like malarkey. Yeah. If you're going to shoot someone who's already laying in the dark, why not just approach them and disappear into the dark? Just my thoughts. There has not been any new information released regarding Sandra's case in over 20 years. Back in 2019, George told the Yakima Herald Republic that he felt more understanding toward his mother and why the court came to the decision they did now that he, as a seven-tour veteran of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, had struggled with addiction issues of his own. At the time of the article, he was four months sober. I was unable to find George to check in with him, but we wish him all the best in his fight for recovery. To counter the pain of her death, George likes to recall the two memories he has of her from when they were together. One, when she pulled him in a wagon to a restaurant while they were living in Wapato, and when he was playing with his sister at their grandmother's home, and it got his mom to laughing. 
While there isn't anything George can do to reconnect with his mother, he shared that he can learn and grow from it. He can teach his own children about their heritage and how to stay away from dangerous vices, leading by example with his sobriety. Intending to complete a criminal justice degree, George has said that he hopes to help other women like his mother to become an advocate for those he now sees are so often left behind. As usual, this is not the only tragedy Sandra's family has experienced. An unnamed relative passed away before they could get a life-saving liver transplant. Another died after accidentally falling and striking their head on a coffee table. In some interesting news, George learned a few years ago that Sandra had another son. He would be about 50 years old now. I don't know if George ever found this half-brother, but if you're in the area, you might know of a son, a fourth child that Sandra gave birth to. If you do know this man's name or any information, you can email Tammy Ayer at T-A-Y-E-R at YakimaHerald.com. And if you know anything about the murder of Sandra Lee Simicon on June 12, 2003 in Seattle, you are asked to call the Seattle PD tip line at 206-233-5000. I know for some listeners, a list like this requesting information and naming name after name can be a little tedious. But I do these stories for a couple of reasons. One is that they need to be told to keep the names in the public's mind in a bid for tips. The other reason is that the jarring number, the names going on and on, I just hope that maybe it'll make some people who aren't already aware, aware of just how dire the situation is for missing and murdered Indigenous women and all Indigenous people. That's always my first thought when you do these types of stories is just the sheer number. Oh, is yeah. so depressing. That I could sit and just read the names or just read the blip. Uh, you know, the article I started with on this was just kind of a little paragraph on each person. I could sit and read that and it would take half an hour just to read that without any other info to it. You may think, oh, that's so long ago. Well, their kids are still around. Their grandkids are around. Everyone deserves to have some sort of answer, especially in this kind of scenario. So I just hope that it's something, again, <laughs> some of these where it's, oh, you know, it's so old and asking for tips. Someone might think, I mean, you had that case where it was like, oh, I didn't call it in because I thought you guys solved it. Exactly. And I always think of that one where someone might hear a name and go, wait a minute. I thought that was closed, which is why I never called that little thing in. So call it in. That's all it's about. Call it in. Everyone ready for a perfect take? Yeah, Susan. <laughs> Susan's in the building, everyone. She shows up at night. She wears her sunglasses. sunglasses. <laughs> As with other episodes, I've done... Mm-mm. You done fucked up. I've done fucked up. Okay, Susan. My juice. Something happened that mountain meat. Mountain meat. Mountain meat. That's some mountain meat I'd like to climb. (laughs) A headline on page two of the Columbian from February. 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 Oh, my gosh. February 15th. (gasps) That's today. February. Like that? Yeah, that was a little awkward, but yeah. (laughs) And her hyoid. Hyoid? Hyoid. And her hyoid bone. 
and her hyoid bone. Uh, and her hyoid, hyoid, say it, hyoid. hyoid, hyoid, and I would take the whole sentence again. You know when I? Oh my god, fuck that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> That's a blooper. You're doing, you're doing great. Oh my though. god, every minimal. other sentence. No minimal. I know, but you don't have to hear yourself edited the first time around. True that, go, but you fuck this. Don't judge it by that. We all have our moments. I judge it by that because then I listen to yours and go four edits. Mine? Yes. Oh, that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. <laughs> I hate you for how efficient you I'm are. I'm sorry. Can we just can we just sit here a moment and bask in how nice that oh, was? Oh, yeah. You kicked my ass. Oh, oh yeah, my you get, God. You have like long ass stretches. Are you in love with me? I am because I'm actually trying to be more how you. I, I'm trying to be like you. Because you do more of a casual and for some reason that works and there's a flow and I try to not be so hard on the script and then I fuck over myself. But I fuck over I'm myself. Trying, <laughs> trying to loosen it up so I can get those long stretches. Oh, he's cute. Oh, hello. I'm just over here on <laughs> Tinder. <laughs> oh, shit, girl. Not in East County. Turn oh, it no. off. <laughs> I'm looking at my likes from all over the U.S. Oh, congratulations. It's much more fun that way. He had grown. Grown. <laughs> That was my favorite slip-up. <laughs> he grown. He grown into such a big boy. What a big You're boy. You're so grown up. You're a grown up. Wony boy. <laughs> like the meme I posted to Murder in the Rain story today. <laughs> Did you see it? Yeah. Nothing's as funny as your friend, your very close friend saying one word a little bit wrong. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. And I said at the top, like, the start of all of our bloopers. <laughs> First degree murder. First degree murder. Because he's a grown up. If there was a mistake, my made. Mate. 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 Grown up. Murder. Mate. Okay. <laughs> okay. A nut sack, a hairy ball sack. If, uh, ba -ba -ba -ba. if there if was a wanna <laughs> pick a guy, home would be tonight. It's none, none of your business. business. And if she. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon-exclusive episodes and content. For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore Murder in the Rain. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>